All right, good to see you all. Um, again, this is our last of five little uh, mini series in Psalms 19, what portion, and then going through this. I hope you can take charge, and I hope you've been uh, drawing closer to Christ through His Word. He's given us His very Word, His very life expressed in His flesh and in the written pages. That we take that and receive that and, and live it according to that. Um, but as we get started this morning, I just want to, you know, we, we take a look, especially Americans in American history, and this is probably true for all people everywhere, but Americans in particular are very pragmatic. We, we kind of know what we want, we, we know, all right, we want this, here's what we got to do to get there, that's the line thing. And our nation is kind of built in a very pragmatic, very logical, right? We want this, we need to set politics this way. Um, and it goes for everything in life. Um, in just general philosophy that most people assume in America, you know, it's the place where you can come and realize your dreams. You can, you can do these steps and you'll have the American dream. So we're a very pragmatic people. We just like to kind of look at it, figure out what needs to happen, we bang it out, we make sure it happens, and we expect that result. What happens when it just doesn't work? What happens when you do X, Y, and Z and it just didn't work out? You didn't get what you expected. It didn't work out the way you wanted. Basically, there's, there's two options from that that we see, at least in the world around us. The either deception or despair. The deception, all right, I'm not getting what I want, but I'm working for it, so I'm going to cheat or lie or steal. I'm still going to get what I want. But now I gotta do it this other way. Well, it's just a spare despair. You can give up your crush, you, you, you need to get what you wanted, and you just don't. You're all done. But there is another way. And that's our text this morning. If I gave this passage to you all this morning, that you would experience the full, refreshing healing of God's word in Christ Jesus. I wish I could make that shorter. I wish I could make something that's shorter. There's just so much fullness and refreshing and healing in the Word of God. Let me start by praying. Father, again, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we can gather together. And we thank you that it's you yourself that meets with us. It's your Word that, that goes out to your Word that needs to be heard. Your word needs to be believed upon, applied. So I ask that that would happen this morning. Would your very word be proclaimed? Would Christ be put forth? Would your saints be edified and sinners come to know you for the first time? We ask this in Jesus' name. Let me read the text. Sorry, I didn't even give you the text, did I? Psalm 119. We're looking at verses 153 to 160. Is that 153 to 160. It says, Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. 
Salvation is far from the wicked, but they do not seek your statutes. Great may your mercy, O Lord, revive me according to your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them, because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. Verse 160. The sum of your word is true, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Broke this up into four points this morning. First, be refreshed by the intimate nature of God's healing word. Verses 153 and 154, the intimate nature of God's healing word. You can see this pretty clearly. Look upon my affliction and rescue me. If I do not forget your law, plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Right off the bat, there's five imperatives. One is repeated twice, and one is repeated three times throughout the text. Now, as we get started, you need to understand two things David is not doing. First, he's not throwing this like selfish, immature little pity party for himself. The pain he is experiencing is real and unrelenting. You see, clearly in this text, and actually, if you read the, the stanzas before and after, it's very clear. There's pain, and it's just unrelenting. This is not just some little, I'm having a bad day, I'm not going to Secondly, as David cries out, he's not putting himself in a place of authority over God and commanding him to know, God, you must do such and such because I say so. What David is saying is, God, you must do such and such because you said you would. And you're the only one who can. So this isn't a cry for help, but it's a conquering cry. There's a cry of a child of God who knows his father, loves him deeply, loves him personally, loves him intimately. So it begins with look. Um, so many translations might say, see or consider. And again, this is repeated in verse 159, like bookends to this stanza. Look, verse 153. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, they're familiar with Hagar. Sarah's maiden. This is a very difficult household to grow up in. And that story. Again, she's an Egyptian maidservant. And at one point, she's fleeing for her life, essentially. Sarah's not been happy with her. And it's interesting, she said that she was found by the Lord. And she cries out, this pagan woman who doesn't know. The Lord from the Bible is going out, right? He, in a sense, names him. You are the God who sees. Even this pagan woman understands this God sees. You're suffering, saying, but that's you this morning. Cry out to your Heavenly Father to rely on His healing word. In your darkest hours, may your heart cry out. Confidently, even like the psalmist, look upon my affliction. 
Here that is actually dual recognition on one side. You can see it's supposed that God alone sees, and God alone is willing and able to act on your behalf. And also on the other side of that coin, it's this reality that you are in real trouble. In this verse, he calls it affliction. And affliction here is more than just, you know, sometimes you think of affliction. Whether it's physically or verbally or just emotionally, um, that's not so much affliction. Affliction here has the idea of, of poverty, this, this misery, this, this often related to slavery. So, in other words, it's not just the bad circumstances that you're in, but it's the reality that you're not able to escape them. That was, that's what makes affliction. of hard times, it's the fact that there's no escape. You can't get out. We, we see that out, in, you know, just you, whether it's religious or even there's, there's secular um, companies and, and mission agencies, and, and they show you that picture of that little African boy starving to death, sitting in the mud. And that's what grips your heart, is that the reality that there's no way out for that boy. That's why they want you to give them money so they can go rescue that person. That that's affliction. It is, it's, it's the circumstance you're in, but it's the fact that you just can't get out. There's no hope unless. And it is to note too that these afflictions, they, they come in different ways. They, they can come from your own sin. Sometimes the affliction that you're facing is the result of your own sin. Others, people are afflicting you because they're they're evil. That they're, they're sinning against you. Lastly, sometimes it's just the sovereignty of God working in ways that you just can't understand. And some of you may be there right now. You, you know that kind of affliction. Here in the spot, you just can't get out. So what are you going to do? Cry out and keep crying out. And, and be specific in your prayers. Continue along. It says, rescue me. So you guys understand that rescue, it, it, it means, it's, it's an acknowledgement that I can't get out. Again, I need someone to come in. I need someone to come and get me out. And that someone needs to be strong enough and well-equipped enough. You, you can't have somebody, you know, in the 80s, I grew up in watching movies in the 80s, and it was always the big steroid dude with the machine guns that came to save the day. He needed to be that big dude. Where can David go to find that someone? Where can you go to find that someone? Now, I want you to see what the psalmist does here. He's very specific. So first, he needs someone to see him, right? Look, to take notice. Because, second, he's in great affliction. And third, he needs to be rescued. So what does he do? He says, for I do not forget your law. Now, out of all the words that he could have used, and you know, this is his play on words. There's all these different words he uses to talk about the word of God, the law of God, the precepts, ordinances, commandments. He chose specifically, I do not forget your law. So this is not some general idea of remembering, you know, scriptural truths, but specifically, again, the law. The law in its most narrow meaning refers to the Ten Commandments. 
Do you guys remember the specific context that the Ten Commandments were given in? Why don't you guys see this? Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're just going to look at the first two verses for now. Here's where God is about to give his law to his people. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he goes on to give the law. So the law giving was in direct relationship to God rescuing them out of Egypt, rescuing them out of their affliction. And this is kind of just a short way of saying, if you turn back to chapter 3, go ahead and turn back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. This is more specifically how God acted. Exodus 3, 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. And it, and it goes on. You see the connection that the psalmist is, is being, he's reminding himself. Where do I go when I need someone to rescue me? Where do I go when I need someone to see my affliction? He knows exactly who to go to. This is God himself. This is his nature. This is what he does. He sees. He sees you personally. He sees your affliction personally. And he rescues you personally. Again, the law was not just a list of do's and don'ts, but the necessity of a covenant relationship. As you know, the rest of Scripture, and especially the New Testament, they they complete that relationship in Christ. So all I have to say, brothers, is, is... the more you engage with the scriptures, the more you experience your Savior. Those far and distant stories about them out there thousands of years ago in the desert all of a sudden become that healing bomb to your very soul. And for you, those of you that, that know Christ, he is the ultimate rescuer of your soul. And it's so amazing how these cries for help are ultimately answered in Jesus Christ. In fact, these two verses, just these first two verses, outline the, whole, the gospel. And we're going to see that clearly as we move on. But again, it doesn't mean that you cry out and boom, your, your troubles are done. They don't just suddenly disappear. And, and David just keeps crying out. It's just, just rapid succession, just one after another. Look, see, help, deliver. Next, plead my cause. And this does, this has a legal tone to it. You can almost picture a, a courtroom scene. As a man has been convicted and sentenced to a life of hard labor as a slave, only to end in an excruciating death. And what's interesting here, I don't think the, the English language really does this justice. In the original, it's literally just two words, riva, rivi. So he, the, and you can almost hear those two words are almost exactly identical. The psalmist 
isn't asking for a lawyer here. The, the case is already done. He's, he's already sentenced. He's, he's gone. He's convicted. He's asking God to fight my fight. In other words, I need you to stand in my place. I need you to bear my burdens. Is that not the gospel? Is that not Jesus? And not only that, it goes on. There's, there's a debt to pay. He's already been handed over to the slave masters. There's a debt to pay and, and, and you can't afford it. You need someone to redeem you. So again, he cries out without even stopping, redeem me. In the Old Testament, this word here is the, the kinsman redeemer. And simply, in its most basic sense, it's if you were in trouble, in great trouble, trouble that you couldn't get yourself out of, it was the duty of your closest relative to, to basically help you get out of that situation. There was an expectation that because of the relational and familial ties, that your kinsman, your, your closest relative, would drop whatever they were doing and come to redeem you. He, he would do whatever it takes to get you out of that trouble, whether it's financial or whatever it may be. He would satisfy the demands of your penalty. Jesus. This is just the gospel being played out before our eyes. Lastly, we come to the deepest cry of the heart. And it's repeated three times in these eight verses, at least a dozen times throughout this this chapter. Revive me. Give me life. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there now. Just completely on empty. The, the life sucked out of you. You've been doing the best you could by the grace of God, but it's just, it's just not working. The circumstances keep getting worse. Things keep falling apart. You think, I, I can't take anymore, I can't take another step, and then something else falls apart. When all else fails, all you can do is cry out to your God and rely on his word. And that is exactly where you need to be. So the word of God doesn't claim to just immediately fix your circumstances, but it promises that you have a Christ who will uphold you even beyond the point where all you feel is death and despair. You say, I can't take it, I can't take it anymore, and then something else happens, and he meets you there. I can't take anymore. I can't take more. Something else happens, and he meets you there. Cry out. Revive me. Give me life. He says specifically, according to your word. This is relying on his word, that he will do what he said he will do. In his time. In his way. What's, what's interesting, at this point, you'd like to just write, boom, it's done. I cried out to God, give me life. And he, and he just jumped in and fixed it all. But David's not done yet. To remind himself that, that God is intimate only because he made himself accessible. That's the second point. Be refreshed by the accessible nature of God's healing word. 
155 and 156. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek his statutes. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Saints, you need to remind yourself how God made himself accessible and then rely on his word. And this is one reason good theology is so important. You have to immerse yourself in the truths of Scripture and the truths of who God is. And you have to remind yourself constantly, especially when the hot times hit. Your mind just doesn't work right. You know that. You've experienced that. I know you have. The Word of God gives your mind rails so it won't go off the deep end. God has made your salvation and your sanctification so accessible. It's literally written down for you. You've probably got ten different versions on your phone right now. You start to realize as you hold on to his word, you begin to notice that it's actually Christ who's holding on to you. So how do we see this accessible nature? First, he looks at it negatively. He says, the wicked are far from salvation because they reject his statutes. That's 155. This is ultimately, ultimately about rejecting God's authority. And we know from scriptures like Psalm 19, we read the middle portion earlier, the first portion, in Romans 1 and 2, it makes it very clear that God is revealed through creation and conscience. So all of mankind has that general revelation, and we all choose to suppress it. As an unbeliever, you do everything you can to put it out of your mind. You don't want to deal with this God who is over you. You don't want to deal with the, the consequences that he, he says he's going to do if you don't obey you just don't want to think about that. You just want to live your life, your way, do whatever makes you happy. You're not going to submit to his authority. You're not going to seek out his rule for your life. See, the, the, the wicked aren't far because they can't find God. God has not made himself successful. That's, that's not the, the reality. God has made himself accessible. The wicked are far because they choose to go their own way. They reject the word of God. That is wicked. But for a believer, it's very, very different. See, the statutes of God actually draw you in, and instead of receiving wrath, you receive mercy. And God's mercy is always accessible to the suffering saint. Cries out, great are your mercies, O Lord. So you understand mercy, specifically God's mercy. Mercy is when God acts on your behalf out of his compassion. So in other other words, it's, it's when compassion takes action. And as we see here, these mercies are powerful and plentiful. God's mercies are, are powerful. Listen to how Peter describes the, the power and greatness of God's mercy. This is 1 Peter 1, 3-4. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has, he has compassion and he's acting on it. He's given us new birth into a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
And he, he goes on in the, next, the rest of the text to just explain because of the great mercy, you can have joy even in trials, even in afflictions. There's some mighty mercies. Not only are his mercies powerful, but they're also plentiful. Notice how it's plural. And according to Jeremiah, we sung this, they're, they're new every morning. I think you get the picture. that They don't run out. There's no expiration date. There's no blackout dates. It's saying you have full and free access. His mercies are powerful and plentiful. David knows this. David has experienced this. Saints, that you've experienced this. And he continues to cry out again, revive me. He says here, revive me according to your statutes. Some of you may have judgments. In other words, basically what he's saying, I'm, I'm still dying here. I still need you to give me life. But I trust that you're going to do the right thing. Again, at the right time. Have you gotten to that point where you trust Christ so completely that no matter how bad it gets, you're going to wait for his mercy and his mercy alone? You're not going to try and fix it. You know you can't. See, the primary reason for these legitimate, deep, dark periods of your life is that you would learn to trust God as he is, not how you want him to be. We, we all have an imperfect picture of God. And it's through his word and through his word being practiced that we actually start to see God, God more and more clearly. We, we, we all need to remove those false reality or false Impressions that we have about God. We, we, we have that, that sin nature. So we want to make a God like ourselves after our own, after creation. So even after coming to know the truth, God is still doing that work through his word. No, that's actually not true about me. This is what, it's, what I'm like. This is how I act. This is how I want you to act. This is how I want you to behave. These afflictions. This is how it, that works out. So the more you experience his intimacy, the more you experience his accessibility. So it, it's like a cycle. He's, he's made himself intimate. He's made himself accessible. And you keep going back. The more time you spend with him, the more time you want to spend with him. He proves to be the only source of both new life and revitalizing life. And as the cycle progresses, this, this leads you to Stability. That third point, be refreshed by the stabilizing nature of God's healing word. Let me read verse 157 through 159. Many are my persecutors and adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and load them because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. Saints, I, many of you have, have known this, if you've experienced this, you've, you've noticed how your relationship grows closer to God, 
it actually stabilizes you. And it's specifically through these afflictions, these dark times, they seem to actually stabilize you more than when the blessings just kind of rain down. And of course, it doesn't feel like it at the time. No one will go around asking for afflictions. But God knows what he's doing. He's growing you. He's, he's strengthening you. He's stabilizing you. See here, even at this point, persecutors and adversaries can't cause you to swerve from his word. A persecutor is one who chases you down. They're always looking for an opportunity to chase you away. It's kind of like that angry dog down the street. Every time you walk by the house, he just starts barking. He starts chasing you, and you're glad there's a fence there. There are folks that just want to send you running from the straight and narrow way. They want to see you get off the path. They want to see you go into false, into falsehood, into just the rest of the world. Get off this path. I'm going to chase you off this path. I'm going to make it difficult for you. Maybe there was a time when you would, would have bailed. Early on, you walk, you got to learn this, right? There's time afflictions come, and you're just like, all right, I've had enough. I'm out of here. And you need to repent, and you come back. But over time, as these afflictions come, and as these afflictions grow in intensity, it begins to strengthen you. It begins to stabilize you. Through these afflictions and reliance on God's word, you've been so changed, so impacted, so stabilized that running away isn't even an option anymore. I'm not leaving. I'm staying on this path. I'm not going to swerve from his word. It is good. It is right. Yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. His testimony there is his revealed will. God has revealed his will and his way. And no matter how difficult it gets, he hasn't left you. And you are determined not to leave him. In fact, the idea of bailing out on what God has ordained for you actually makes you sick. It's verse 158. You actually... Part of the stabilizing is growing in legitimate hatred of sin. It says, I, I behold the treacherous and load them because they do not keep your word. Again, there's a little bit more here than what seems. The, the word treacherous here refers to unfaithfulness. So in context, it would have been fellow Jews. Again, they would know the laws of God. They would know his testimonies. They would know good and evil, right and wrong. But they departed. They departed from his testimonies. They weren't faithful. They do not keep your word. And similarly, in today's context, there are many who call themselves Christians. They claim to know Jesus and probably do know a lot about him. They even claim to love Jesus. Yet their lives deny him. It's all talk. They, they don't actually follow him. And yes, saints, that, that should make you sick. That may, should make you loathe. And, and the intention of the original, original text is, is just that. It's, it's, I behold the treacherous and loathe. In our translation, the word them is added just to kind of help make the sentence flow better. 
But it's just really, when I see what's going on, I I get sick. You know, this deep feeling or or loathing over sin, and, and particularly unfaithfulness, causes mourning. But what did Jesus say, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Even talking about persecutors, a little bit later, Christ says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Saints, you know this well. You see treachery all around you. You see unfaithfulness. And it disgusts you, and it should. And here I want to pause and remind you, this is why it's so important to have a clear articulation of the gospel. This is, this is critical. It's absolutely necessary. I'm not saying you have to be some theologian. You have to use all these big words. But the, the, the typical gospel these days is Jesus loves you and he has a plan for your life. That is not the gospel. You can't talk about the gospel. We, we, the first two verses, that, that outlines the gospel. You need to talk about the affliction of sin and the coming wrath of God. Then you can talk about how Jesus is the only one that can rescue you. He's the only one that can stand in your place. He's the only one that can take on your debt of sin and credit his righteous life to you. Christ is the only one that can redeem you because he paid the all-sufficient sacrifice his very own life. His blood was spilt for you. And again, this is applied as you put your faith in him. As you cry out, God, give me life. And only then do you receive new life. And that new life has that new direction. And that new direction isn't perfect, but it's following the Lord. And when you fail, you, you confess, you repent, you get back up, you make things right. That's a, that's a true Christian. Not just, oh yeah, I love Jesus and I do whatever I want. All right, let's get back to our text. We've got to be clear with the gospel, folks. That's all I'm saying there. We've got to be clear with the gospel, especially in our context. So many churches around us, so many church people, they need to know who Christ is and they need to repent. All right, lastly, God's healing word stabilizes you and that you experience and reciprocate more of his love. Verse 159 says, Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. And again, you notice these, these bookends, one, both verse 153 and 159 begin with the, the same word. And again, some versions have it look or consider or some look in one place and consider in the other place. It's the same word. But this time, the object isn't his afflictions like in verse 153, but his love for God's precepts. That is to say, he, he loves everything that God has appointed in his word. 
And really, that can only happen if you love the God that appointed them. And that can only happen if you love because he first loved you, right? 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Ephesians 1 through 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. And again, the text goes on to unfold all the riches and, and glories that have been given to the saints. Through these afflictions, you actually experience the love of God. Your love grows deeper for him and you experience more of his love for you. And that's why the, the final cry for life, again, the third time, over and over again, this, this final cry for life, for revival, is anchored in his loving kindness. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The loving kindness of God is like nothing. There is nothing else that is like the loving kindness of God. His loving kindness is not affected by time or space or material. God's loving kindness, it's God's own personal prerogative to love you because he loves you. I encourage you, if you're hurting, spend time meditating on the end of Romans chapter 8 this week. If that doesn't stabilize you, nothing will. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul argues he's he's already given you a son. You think he's going to withhold anything? He's given you the greatest how much more able and willing is he to give you something lesser? Finally, be refreshed by the imminent nature of God's healing word. And imminent here is an A in the middle. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. And there's a difference. This is imminent means re- remaining, indwelling, existing in permanence. I should have just said permanent. But this is the reality. You've got to exercise this unrelenting faith in the imminent or permanent word of God. He ends here, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. And at first reading, I mean, this verse kind of sticks out. You've got all these, help me, help me, help me, help me. I, I do this, I don't, you know, I love you, I'm doing these things, I want to follow your statutes, and then verse 160 kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. There's, there's no cries for help, there's no pleas, there's no looking at how I'm living my life, there's no looking at how the wicked live their life. All that stops. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. See, this is the reality of someone who has been in the furnace of affliction for a long time. Again, three times in this text alone, there was a cry for life itself. But he didn't give up. Why? 
faith. 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So God not only imparts faith for salvation, but also faith for living in a fallen world. And just like you exercise that faith in Christ for initial salvation, you have to exercise your faith in Christ for continual revitalization. This is a, a hard text for our modern church. The, the modern church doesn't know what to do with this, to be honest. They just want happy, positive, and encouraging. You know, if you press them, and I've seen this happen. No, I've, I've got some issues. I need, I need some serious help. No, just, you know, Jesus loves you. He's got a plan for your life. No, I need help. At the end of the day, they'll hand you a number to a psychiatrist down the street. Go talk to him. You don't need a psychiatrist. Exercise your faith. God has given you faith. If you trust Christ for your eternal soul, you can trust Christ for today. And that's all he's given you is today. He'll deal with tomorrow, tomorrow. He's got mercies for that too. saying lastly your faith in the word of God must trump your emotions your intellect and even your theology what yeah you know what you're not perfect you don't understand God perfectly there are areas in your life where you need to change your theology and I'm not coming here to try to like point this out like you need to do this or that. I'm just saying you don't know God as he truly is. It's only through his word, living it out, practicing it, that you see him more and more clearly every day. You understand him more and more clearly every day. Since you know this, your, your emotions are, are, are fickle. I mean, what does it take to wake up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning? I don't even know half the time. You just wake up and you're angry. Your intellect. You got some smart people here. You're not that smart. You don't know everything. Your theology. We do make a big deal about theology here. We want you to know God. We want you to know His Word. We want you to know Christ. But it's something we're constantly growing in. You look at the end of some of these famous theologians' lives, and they actually write books on retractions. You know, I got this wrong. It's actually like this. We're imperfect people. Faith in the word of God, that doesn't change. It is altogether true. It's everlasting. That trumps everything. You've got to submit to that. When you're in these times of affliction, run to Christ in his word. Cry out to him and trust that in his perfect time he will, because he said he would, restore your soul.
Saints, he's intimate with you. He's accessible to you. He will stabilize you. And he's permanently with you. And nothing can ever change that. Nothing. Even if your circumstances don't change. Let this be the cry of your heart. I'm going to cry out to Christ alone. I'm going to wait for him to deliver. Because he said he would. It's going to happen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. God, we even thank you for the saints that have gone before. They've they've left us examples. How do we deal with life? How do we make it through these afflictions? God, would you work through your word in your saints this morning? There are doubtless saints here that are struggling for whatever reason. God, would you grow their faith? And again, that might be through more trials. But would they see the beauty of Christ? Would they see and experience his love through it all, his mercies through it all? Would they experience your very salvation? Whether it comes today or tomorrow or 10 years down the road, We know because you said so, you save your people. God, help us to live in light of this. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.